1: Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. Today, we are talking to a, I, I was, I was going to say, I was going to say writer, but that, but writer doesn't capture several of the elements and the formats. We have, we have Jeet here, here. Um here yeah. and uh, I,
0: I usually call myself a well-known Twitter clown
1: okay <laughs> all right all right well I didn't it didn't isn't in your in your in your bio it says Twitter essay Twitter essay okay, essays. okay yeah, right, yeah. right 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 yeah
0: unfortunately that's probably gonna be on my obituary that I was the uh, one of the pioneers of the
1: Twitter essay forum right 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 so uh, and then we also have David Tainter my colleague hey here. guys Hi, David Hey. so uh, today we are we're talking to Jeet and 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 um, Many of you, I'm sure, know Jeet from Twitter, where uh, not only does he have a big voice, but was sort of, I mean, it's funny, you're an innovator in a... Medium that should be destroyed and and is and is and is destroying the world basically. That's but right. still. that's,
0: that's right. yeah, well, like uh, I often feel like uh, Oppenheimer uh, when the atomic bomb went off. Yes. You know, I have become death, yes. the destroyer of worlds. Basically, basically. <laughs> so, so yeah, I think around. Uh, I mean, I was actually a little bit late to Twitter, but uh, once I started picking it up, um, I noticed some people like uh, David Fram were doing sort of continuous tweets, and then I I started to really get into that, and I think I helped. I didn't certainly didn't create the form, but I think I popularized. Right, the right. Twitter uh, essay or Twitter storm. Right, uh, I, I don't know what to say, like uh, <laughs> Mia culpa. Uh but, but I do think like. I don't know. I mean, I, I have mixed. See, see, for me, Twitter has been very good. Like, I think I owe a lot of my prominence. I mean, I've been a writer for a long time, but like my current prominence to Twitter, uh, and it's connected with a lot of people, like you. Uh, and so it's been good, but I do recognize that um, it has a lot of social harm. And actually, I think I just saw an article in Jacobin, which I seems like an almost exaggerated. But when you think about it, it's not, which is that you know, like social media is actually like causing mental health problems. Like I think I think it like I think there's a real element. You can see that in people.
1: Like well, yeah. there's even I mean I I can certainly see it in myself, and I think many people see this. That and it's not just social media. It is all the things. It's it's a cluster of things tied to our phones and stuff. Right. That sometimes, um, you know get into an elevator, yeah. have a kind of a moment of dead time, like, gotta get my, f- yeah, like, yeah, like yeah. I need it, right? And, and, and there's, and this isn't accidental because these platforms, the physical phone itself, they're all designed to make you need to engage over and over and over again. And people actually get something that is a little like when you need a cigarette
0: that's right. or that's something a, yeah, like yeah. that. No, no, this is an addictive quality and, but it also, it's an addictive quality that like is like the worst of drugs, which <laughs> encourages bad behavior. Right. You don't <laughs> even feel good afterwards, right? <laughs> that's right. That's at that's least right. like, yeah, at least
1: you're like shooting heroin. <laughs> like I, apparently it feels great. It be, right. You're killing your slow motion, like suicide, yeah. but like yeah, yeah. it feels awesome. With the phone, well, you, you just feel it. a phantom buzz in your pocket. Uh, like, yeah. Oh, I gotta, like, check yeah, it. yeah. Yeah. All yeah. right. So there's a bunch of things that we want to get into before we do that. Uh, we're going to share a word from our sponsors, Grady's cold brew iced coffee, and and actually we're we're inducting Jeet into the into the Grady's cold Brew yeah, cult yeah. here. He has Grady's right here.
0: I, I've known about the coffee from uh, listening to uh, this podcast, and so I was, I was one of the reasons to come on <laughs> it. I, I
1: thought like well, go. they're going to give me the free, free coffee. coffee. Yeah, and, we just, yeah, and it's yeah, great. Yeah, it's really yeah. good. No, coffee. No, it is good. It yeah. is good. So uh, the, here's here's what I'm going to tell you. If you love cold brew iced coffee, you know how expensive your habit can be. I mean, Jeet was sort of implicitly just just uh, referring to that because he came here just to score some free coffee. Uh, we're talking four to five bucks a cup at the coffee shop. Over a hundred dollars a month. That's that's frankly, if you just like one cup. Yes. And who's such a so, so low a energy. energy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, over $100 a month, and that's just the money. Now add up all the time you've spent waiting in lines at the coffee shop, it's not exactly convenient. Luckily, there's a better way. Order Grady's Cold Brew online and have it delivered straight to your home or office. You can pour a glass of Grady's Famous Cold Brew straight from your fridge for less than a buck a cup. That saves you over $1,000 a year. And shipping's always free. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady's Cold Brew brew.com with promo code TPM that's promo code TPM okay gee a number of issues i want to ask you about one of the first ones is you are you live in canada you're canadian right yes, so far I, I so good i have to confess yes right that's okay true. okay but when you write about us politics often you the way that you couch the language you write you don't you don't write in a way kind of like I'm Canadian over here writing about like you Americans yeah I, I, it, from your writing it's always seemed to me. That you see, this is kind of one North American polity. Yeah. Am I right about that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. My, I,
0: actually, I mean, like, uh, um, uh, I'm um, doing a PhD, and like my two fields are America and Canada. And in within um, academia, I'm what's, what would we call a continentalist? Like, I don't see like a you know distinct Canadian identity. I see uh, variations of a North American identity, uh, and that includes actually Quebec, uh, uh, even uh, for, uh, as distinct
1: from the rest of Canada. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, right. yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, no, I, I definitely see it as um, all one thing, and uh, in that sense, as a challenge both to a certain type of Canadian nationalism but also to a type of American um, uh, exceptionalism as well. I mean, I think there's a lot of things in America that, if you take a more hemispheric perspective, can make a lot of sense of. Uh, slavery, for one, like I think, you know, it benefits to know that there's a slave system that, you know, existed throughout the uh, hemisphere.
1: But it is true that that from a number of different perspectives, that slavery is such a big part of the U.S. story. Yeah. And yet, as you say, slavery was a hemispheric yeah. system, um, at which which dominated the Caribbean, had a had a whole different kind of existence in Mexico and 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 Latin America. Yeah. Okay, that, we got got to wall well, that yeah, off for actually, a second. Maybe, okay. maybe like well, to, to bring a concrete right. example
0: yeah. of this, uh, which is, might be useful, is like when I first started tweeting, it was the time where um, Rob Ford was mayor of Toronto. TPM was actually one of the American outlets that. No, uh, totally, man. That <laughs> we live for that, that stuff. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and uh, so uh, the, the um, I mean, one of the things with like um, uh, Rob Ford is that he embodied a certain type of people call it sort of right wing populism, but I think it's more a kind of you know. Authoritarian uh, cult of personality, strongman politics, Um, and uh, one of my uh, colleagues, uh, our friend uh, Daniel Dale, covered it for the Toronto Star. And a lot of the skills he acquired covering Rob Ford have served him very well because now he's one of the you know main chroniclers of the Trump era. Right. Right point. Yeah. His his whole thing about like covering Trump's lies, he actually pioneered that with Rob Ford because Rob Ford would lie in the exact same way. And uh, Daniel developed this technique of like you know like you know like Noting every lie, right. Putting in a factual correction, and then for him and for me, like in some ways, we were kind of prepared for the Trump era because we had seen something like this up close.
1: No, I mean, I, I, it's, it's, it's interesting because you know the, the, what Daniel does, where it's not this impressionistic mm-hmm. talking about the inner truth of lies yeah. and all this kind of bullshit, <laughs> but it's just counting, yes, right, and actually, you know, every single one. It's interesting because, I mean, man, that is. You know, the only time, you know, there's actually, we, we have the Golden Dukes, which yeah. is our annual uh, scandal awards at the end of every year. Yeah. I, I can't even, I think it's like the 12th yeah. year or something like that. Yeah. The the A few years ago, we actually commissioned a Duke statuette, actually three of them. And the only time, and it was actually for the year that uh, Doug Ford's the brother, yes, uh, Rob so, Ford, yeah. uh, who s- sadly passed away yes. kind of at the end of his crazy run um uh as a as a very young man um he was we basically commissioned the statuette for the year he won and we sent hunter walker up to toronto to give him the award so there was this whole so but it really is true that that rob ford is like a you know, he's like the almost like the John the Baptist to the to the Jesus of, of Trump. You know, kind yeah. of like charting the path and 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 you know, because a lot of similarities,
0: a lot of similarities. Yeah, I mean, there there are a few important differences which uh, Daniel has kind of talked about. I mean, I think with the Fords, homophobia is much more salient than uh, racism, and uh, and then Rob right. Ford. I mean, impressively for a, a North American uh, right winger, like got. Uh, significant support among uh, people of color
1: right and Uh, and wasn't that like because we were deep in that story like in Toronto, that was, it's It's sort of like the almost like the exurbs or like the yes, the, yes. The, the periphery of the city.
0: That's right. I, I actually lived in, um, or just adjacent to the ward that Rob Ford was first elected in and it's a very working class uh, area. Uh, it used to be very heavily Italian, now it's very heavily sort of Caribbean and East Indian such as myself and my family uh, and uh, uh, so yeah, it's, uh, uh, but I mean he was able to um, take a lot of the res- resentment that people in uh, that area, including members of my family, right. <laughs> uh, felt towards like the the uh, downtown elite, right. you know, the sort of right. center of the city, which they they felt with justification had been ignoring their concerns. Right. So right. in some ways, Rob Ford like um, uh, pioneered this sort of you know taking people's very legitimate concerns uh, and and uh, uh, you know formulating it as the enemy is the elite. Although I mean, this also has like a much larger history. But in 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 our uh, you know, after 2008, I think Rob Ford was a very significant pioneer
1: right well it's interesting too that that um that you know that anti-elite thing is is certainly has a long history it has a long future Mm -hmm. too yes um but what was but generally speaking in the u.s that is kind of pitched with a with a at least a racial spin to it often explicitly racial so that you know it's it's often occurred to me in u.s politics you know there are whole segments of our of our national community that don't get to participate in anti elitist politics, yeah. which is sort of like one of the birthrights of living <laughs> in the United States, right? <laughs> but true. it's like walled off from from again, basically in a, in a lot of cases, um, basically non white populations because it it often has a a raced. Yes. spin yeah. to it yeah, uh, yeah, in yeah. the United States yeah, and, know, and that it, was a little different with, with them.
0: It, with the Forge it was a little bit different yeah, yeah I mean there was still bigotry but it was had sort of different uh, salience and I, I think uh, I mean in America one of the um, sort of essential parts of sort of right wing populism in America is this view that the middle is being squeezed on both ends yep. by the wealthy you know financiers like Soros and, and all that implies right. <laughs> and the, and the uh, people uh, and uh, blacks people of color, right. you know, and uh, so the, the, the
1: elites the, and the non-whites yeah. are kind of squeezing the real America that's right, that's right. in the Midwest. That's, it's, right, that's it's right. kind of like. That's half of U.S. politics. That's right. right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: that is the sort of dominant kind of like mythology, and uh, uh, and which makes it very hard. I mean, I think there have been attempts uh, to do um, sort of you know multiracial populist politics, uh, and the failure of those attempts is uh, you know ha- has occurred as well. But I mean, it's significant even in with the early the genuine populists of the late nineteenth century. There was a period where you know someone like Tom Watson was yeah.
1: organizing a uh, genuinely. Uh, Pan, you know, yeah. multiracial. I mean, it didn't last long. It didn't last long. And yeah. Watson
0: himself, ended up being <laughs> right. a Klansman, right? Like, right, right. Like, right, uh, right. Uh, so, so, so there's that. I mean, that, that's one of the interesting things about populism and American populism. It, it, it does have that. I think uh, more recently, like I do think there were elements of Jesse Jackson's Rainbow Coalition that did actually try to tap into that populist mm-hmm. tradition. If you if you remember correctly, he did actually quite well. I think in uh, r- r- rural areas in the Midwest. And I think so. yeah. That yeah, was yeah, a long he, time ago. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. I think some right. of his surprising success was in like Iowa and places like that. Well,
1: that you know, one of the interesting things there is that was still in the era where you know, kind of like the farm aid era, where where, where a lot of um, discontent among family farmers or at least uh, uh, you know people in 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 the farming sector did have something still kind of like a labor left sort of thing to it. Yeah. You know, Willie Nelson's the activism at the time. And, so it's, it's a different period.
0: Yes, yeah, very different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that's um, uh, sort of all gone. Um, and I mean, like, I mean, it is interesting. Canada itself is a kind of interesting test case of this because it, um, out in the Canadian prairies, we've had two divergent strains of populism. One is so, sort of the social credit movement that took hold in Alberta in the 1930s, um, uh, and that is very strongly like right wing. It comes out of evangelical uh, Christianity. Uh, and then uh, in the neighboring province. Uh, where uh, I live, part of the year, Saskatchewan. We had the, uh, um, uh, the Canadian socialism being born with the CCF, and which later became the NDP. And, right, right. Yeah, so, right. so, and both came out of yeah, the, the, um, uh, different forms of sort of farming protests. So, I mean, that's one of the things that sort of interests me: the way the populism um, is a two-headed thing, and it can go in different directions.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, let me ask you: this. I'm I'm curious to go back when we were talking about your sense of Political identity mm-hmm. is a sort of a continental one. That yeah. really we live in this sort of like North American space, and we happen to have divided it up into these, into into I guess depending on whether Mexico is part of it, yeah. two or three different states. Let's talk about that a little more because I'm interested both in your kind of how you think of of uh, contemporary politics, but it's clearly rooted to a great degree in as a histor you know in your yeah. historical work. So walk me through that when you I, I was interested when you said like a continentalist view of North American culture where, where, explain that to me from a well you know ac- academic historian <laughs> point of view
0: okay I, I, I think uh, um, I, I mean, just as a basic fact, like the sort of, you know, the, the nations that now exist in uh, in Canada and the United States were both born of this uh, common experience of, you know, white settler uh, calling from the rich isles. And if you just say, you know, white settlers in general, that encompasses, you know, the broader hemisphere. Right. 1776 was the birth not of one nation, but of two, because you had the United States obviously being born, but Canada as a political identity was those people who rejected the American Revolution. Revolution, which included a lot of people who are nominally Americans who are like sort of the loyalists right. who came up to Canada
1: which is significant I mean a significant, yeah, a significant number yeah uh, sign- yeah number I mean that's from from my academic background that's a that's a big deal. Yeah, a lot of right. people that's, left and went lot, to Canada.
0: A lot of people left. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, and, uh, and and then, uh, you know, like you can overstate the loyalist role, but I think more broadly, the it is the case that you have both, you know, come out of this Anglo tradition, which subsumed you know, Quebec, and you have both sort of like these polities that are, you know, broadly in the framework of Western democracies, both variations. I mean, like, you know, we, Canada followed the Westminster model, and there there are differences, and the differences are significant enough that you can, you know, have certain political achievements in Canada, like universal health care. But I mean, like, like they're both broadly part, part of, you know, the sort of like liberal enlightenment project. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, they're, they're Canadians who have tried to, like reject that and construct a kind of Canadian identity that is more anti-American, that sort of, you know, sees... But I, I don't think that you can go very far. Like I think there, there are just significant commonalities, um, and and they're actually, I mean, the, both the differences and commonalities are very. I think the two countries are very useful in studying each other. Uh, there was a famous sociologist, Seymour Martin Lipset, who uh, originally did uh, came up to Saskatchewan to study the uh, socialist party there because it was the first socialist party to win in North America, and then he did a lot of work, sort of comparative, uh, on the sort of comparisons. And in some ways, uh, I mean, aside from the population size, like they are almost. Per- Perfect. They're as close as you can get to perfect comparison. A, a live
1: experiment. Or <laughs> a live experiment. It? Yeah. Of,
0: of, of, yeah, of different societies. Yeah.
1: When you think of what is happening in this country, how does that affect you? Are, are, as a Canadian, are you in some sense, as with other Canadians, sort of dragged along with our folly, even though you don't participate as, as a voter here? Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think so. And I think that the, it's not as like formalized as Steve Bannon would wish, (laughs) but there is a kind of right international of, you know, people across, especially in the sort of contemporary uh, sort of media space of people across borders looking at each other. And it's interesting with Canadian uh, conservatives because Trump is very unpopular in Canada. So like the Canadian conservative party will on the one hand, like sort of, you know, not embrace Trump and will in fact criticize Justin Trudeau like, oh, you made a deal with Trump, you know, like, and, right, 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 right. And, But, I mean, they're also like, you know, picking up on all these, uh, uh, what Trump has succeeded at. And so the Canadian Conservative Party has taken a really hard turn against immigration. Uh, and, uh, and there are people who are, you know, uh, doing these um, alt-right uh, kind of theme issues of, uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 we will not be replaced. Uh, and conversely, I mean, there are people in Canada, uh, the media space is very small there, so there are people like Ezra Levant of The Rebel, who right.
1: like... Uh, Tell us about The Rebel. I know a little bit about it, but I think it's re- it's not too well-known down oh, here. sure,
0: sure, sure. Yeah, the, the, the Rebel... Well, I mean, Ezra Levant is this kind of... Uh, interesting uh, impresario who's been involved in Canadian conservative politics uh, for uh, like a long time uh, you know coming out of Alberta n- the tradition of sort of uh, western grievance and feeling that central Canada has neglected them but he's really um, uh, become increasingly marginalized in the sort of mainstream Canadian media uh, because he uh, you know uh, uh, just his outrageousness and Islam- Islamophobia uh, and uh, but he's found some success in this sort of niche market this thing called The Rebel which is I guess on YouTube and uh, which like, really hits all the sort of Pam Geller themes very yeah, it's hard. It's like
1: sort of kind of bright y kind of... Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, okay. and they
0: get a, a fair bit of funding from like American uh, sources and from American donors. Like I think... Oh, really? I, okay. I, I, I feel like uh, yeah, yeah, there's been some reporting that uh, some of the people that fund uh, David Horowitz also give money to The oh, Rebel. Oh, interesting. Yeah yeah, 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 That makes sense.
1: That makes yeah, sense. That makes yeah, yeah, yeah. And
0: then their market I think is... I mean, I don't think that they see themselves as just a Canadian kind of thing. And they, they've been hooked up with uh, this guy, uh, or they were hooked up in the past with this guy, Tommy Robinson
1: in... Uh, right, right. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. that that Yeah, that guy. Yeah, yeah. That guy. They, they
0: actually had a little bit of trouble, I guess, at the time of the um, uh, Charlottesville uh, because uh, one of their uh, radio personalities uh, kind of like, you know, praised the, <laughs> the white supremacists there. And uh, Gavin McGuinness was involved with them for a while and he's also someone who's like, you know... Yeah, I remember
1: it wasn't... Th- I have this vague sense that maybe like a year ago, maybe this is what you're talking about, that they had been, you know, able to get that transgressive right wing kind of thing going. But had been able to kind of say, well, we're not like, yeah. that stuff but then everybody realized like you are that stuff that's right, that's and that's it right. kind of like spun out a little bit
0: <laughs> that's, right, that's right yeah, yeah the, one of their uh, uh, online personalities Faith Goldie went on uh, like you know she was down there and she says, well they're raising very interesting question, uh, 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 thoughts on the Jewish question you know like,
1: <laughs> <laughs> once you say that, not she are you running for like mayor of yeah she ran, okay. mayor, okay. she,
0: she ran for mayor she ran for mayor in the last election I think she got uh, uh, like uh, th- 3 or 4% of the vote when she was yeah fairly marginal But she's one of these figures of which there are many now in, in this era, you know, that are kind of like online personalities that are like live for getting attention well, and Laura
1: Loomer started with them, right? Yeah, Laura or, Loomer started. Okay. Yeah, yeah. She's, is she American or Canadian?
0: I think she's American, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But she uh yeah, yeah. But yeah, they're always like pulling stunts, like yeah. so I do think that there is a kind of some sort of feedback loop of you know, where these uh characters in Canada are looking to America as a model, but then also finding an audience mm-hmm. in America and finding support. More broadly, so so um, yeah. If you look at any of these uh, characters, they tend to have audiences or uh, connections with people all across borders, and that, that, that that's kind of interesting.
1: Well, it's 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 funny. I mean, one of obviously, I, I think the U.S. population is roughly ten times yes the size of, of Canada. Um, I mean, this is going to sound very parochial, but but. If you if you immerse yourself, read up on the history of Zionism, the history of Israel. One of the things you know before the current disaster, culturally in Israel, was it's small. Mm-hmm. It's a small place, yeah. and and so in mid late twentieth century, there's this kind of theme in Israeli culture of often the children of the founding generation, kind of like I like it here, but it's small. Yeah, like if I really and and our language is small. Yes, there's not that many, you know. So kind of like, if it's it's interesting to think if you if you write in the English language, you've got an immense pot- potential readership, both native speakers and 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 uh, second language speakers. Uh, in Hebrew, you've got like. Six or seven million people,
0: tops, right? And yeah, yeah. Kissinger actually said this about Ben Gurion that he was too big a man for so small a nation, or something very Kissingerian. It's
1: a small, it's a, <laughs> it's, a it's a, it's small on many yes. on many levels, um, and and in in Canada, obviously the language issue is not there. I mean, in a slightly different way in, in Quebec, but. If you, if you were a movie star or a pop star, you kind of inevitably want to kind of yeah. get big in the U.S. just because it's big.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, it's no, no, a big market it's no, a lot of people that's right that's right yeah yeah and in fact I mean there is this sort of history of um, it. it uh, most of them are people on the right because they find American like right more attractive but they are you know, the, you know going back to like Father Coughlin was a Canadian <laughs> I didn't know <laughs> yeah. that yeah <laughs> it's a little we try not to advertise it uh, uh, but okay. you know uh, 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 more recently this whole you know like people like David from uh, you know his, his family's actually very very sort of transborder. border I mean, they've been going back and forth for generations. Uh, so the uh, – uh, but, yeah, there's definitely like a sort of contingent of – oh, Mark Stein would be like an, another example. Right, Yeah. right,
1: uh, yeah. right. Well, it's also – I guess there's also that thing of – I mean, it used to be more the case th- – there's that uh, – uh, his name is escaping me. There's that uh, right after World War II – is it Bonner Law? There's – uh, uh, British Prime Minister, who oh, was yeah, a Canadian, yeah, so yes. there's that thing of kind of like kind uh, of, of yeah, you know yeah. you make it big in Canada and you you know <laughs> and these guys would obviously when Canada was much smaller yeah, this yeah. is like a hundred years ago, yeah, yeah. Um, but in some ways a similar sort of dynamic with yeah. the U.S. Yeah, now.
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that there is this sort kind of. Um, Canadian uh, uh, tradition of uh, people trying to create an Anglosphere type politics I mean my former employer Conrad Black I think was part of that before he himself fell into disgrace and felony Uh, but uh, he I mean I think he himself sort of conceptualized him as someone like Beaverbrook like following that tradition like I'm a press baron who has holdings in America Canada Israel uh, and England and I would like unite these all uh, and, and like when I was working at the National Post under Conrad Black, he would have these editors who I I saw as almost like international mercenaries. Like, you know, he had them at the Jerusalem Post and then would move them to London. Well, the Murdoch
1: world's like that, only with Australia. I mean, at at both both the Murdochs themselves, But also that there is this thing of like, uh, oh, got this guy at the British paper, we're gonna send him into <laughs> send him into New York and shake things up and stuff. <laughs> that's right, that's right, that's right. Yeah, and then,
0: but this, that's a very old tradition. I mean, Beaverbrook was doing that like in the twenties and thirties. I don't know if he had many American holdings, but it's just certainly within the British context of the British Empire. Right. And so and, and there's a, a sense in which this sort of like Anglo Sphere world I mean I think politically the Anglo Sphere doesn't quite work and I think people who want to make it work are living in sort of an imperial fantasy. <laughs> but, well, but, isn't, but, isn't
1: there also an, an, an aspect of, for us here in America, we've got America, it's really big. Yeah. And we've got a big army and, yeah. and all this kind of, <laughs> we send movies all over the place. But if you are Canadian, you live in a smaller place. And Does so there's a, there's a sort of, and I don't mean this in a negative way, There there is a a natural desire to kind of, let's, tell the story a little differently. We're not part of this little thing. We're part of this, we are a subset of this huge thing, the mm-hmm. Anglosphere, which there's is a- which is us, Canada, U.S., Australia, blah, blah.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, there's actually like, um, uh, I mean, if we're taking historical terms, there was actually this whole period at the end of the 19th century and the early 20th century where there were these sort of Canadian imperialist thinkers which is, is you think is absurd like how can there be a Canadian It sounds emperor? very low
1: energy from, <laughs> from the outside
0: But I mean they're, they're basic Concept was that, like you know, that Canada would be the linchpin of like uh, bringing together the, the sort of like Anglo sphere, and because we're so talented and great, uh, we'd be you know, despite our low numbers, we'd be the dominant element of that. Uh, so th- there was <laughs> there was a sort of uh, 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 conceptualization of that. Although, yeah, like many things, it was like maybe a few intellectuals who got right. out of hand.
1: Well, there's also in the in the postwar period, there's something like that with the UK yes. of trying to kind of as, as, the, as, the UK, as the UK imperial project. Falls apart. They're sort of saying, "Well, we're part of this like Anglo-American yeah. thing, which still has some years to go with it."
0: That's right. That's right. Yeah. And I think, I mean, some of the sort of fantasy element of Brexit is uh, that they think that th- there's elements of the British right that still think that's possible, right? They think we can give up Europe and we'll be yeah, The Americans will take us. Well, well, that
1: was one. You know, and this this gets us. And I want to talk about Trump and the and the and the Russia stuff. But this gets us back to an issue when when in 2016 when you're coming up on Brexit uh the Trump people are kind of you know mm-hmm. uh, sharing notes with the, with the Brexit people th- th- one of the big things is like you leave the EU, we will have a, we're going to have a, a you know a kind of a nafta with you guys in like in 10 seconds yeah. and we'll hook you up and and I know that was one of the um I, and at the time Obama was saying to the UK, to the people in the UK like dude don't even think about it. Yeah. You're going to be down like yeah. below like Martinique and Senegal <laughs> right on yeah. the on the trade on the there's trade a... negotiation things. You'll be t- so there is that there was that on the bo- on both sides. Of kind course. of like yeah. um you know to the extent that uh there's always this kind of very loose spectrum of the U.S. has a certain kind of politics. The U.K. has a kind of politics, a little intermediate between the continent and the U.S., that there's always been a a group of people in the U.S. and in the U.K. They're just like, let's ditch that Europe crap and yeah. just get together and be right-wing and white ourselves. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's Which is right, kind yeah. of what Brexit was in a way.
0: That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah that's right. Exactly. And, and I mean, it certainly had uh, precursors in uh, places... Uh, uh, even like going back to the Iraq War, like I think if you might remember in the early kind of uh, uh, days, uh, there was these uh, people are you know like dismissing France and Germany and saying like you know let's just keep it like within the Anglo sphere. Let's just keep it you know like England, America, Australia, you know. And uh, but even Canada didn't join that. Right, <laughs> so, so, right, right, so, uh, right, right. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, I think that's I, I think uh, I uh, I think that's right. And uh, uh, I mean, something like so I figure like Boris Johnson, like I. I could see
1: like if you know things get really bad in england he's, he's an american citizen <laughs> he could come over no, wait, wait now didn't he didn't he renounce it at some point recently or is that am i not oh, remembering um, no it's possible yeah. i may be i i thought that know what i think it might have been is it, it's and again my my recollection is fairly hazy I think when he was still und- in the fantasy that he was going to become prime minister, it may have been that he said that he would renounce his... Oh, I, okay. Yeah, and, yeah. and again, I, I, I'm sure we'll get people correcting me later by email. But uh, but there's a whole tradition of that, too. Obviously, Winston Churchill yes, that's right, had that's an American right. mother.
0: That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And then it was very you know deliberate cultivation of sort of by British aristocrats of America and like you know, trying to marry off all their daughters right. to rich Americans. Right, uh, right, right, uh, right. Yeah, no, no. Uh, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, so, so yeah, there's, there's uh, obviously, uh, yeah, there's a lot of history here. Uh, and it, it does make sense in the sort of context of declining uh, ev- empires, like finding, trying to strategize their way. Uh, out of difficulty. And then with Canada, I mean, I guess the long story of Canada in the 20th century was that, you know, we were like, um, had to negotiate from going from being like a British colony to like, you know, an American, I won't say colony, but you know, like a a subset of the American empire.
1: Well, that's the thing. I mean, there are certainly many Americans that think of Canada as almost just like, a big state with outside pretensions, or you know, kind of like a, a <laughs> Taiwan, like you know, yeah. kind of we're, we're indulging that you don't think you're part of America. Um, and but yeah, that's a whole
0: yeah 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 yeah. I mean I, yeah, I I mean I think the other way to think about it though is that like. I, um, uh, to flip that around, it also challenges ideas of American exceptionalism, right? Like, no, yeah, that, that you know, like it's not just the case that you know. Uh, you know I always love that line in The Simpsons where Lisa Simpson just talking about immigration. Where else put the United States or possibly Canada right. <laughs> could an immigrant rise to? Uh, right. you know? No,
1: it's 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 very true. And there was it's actually there's there's a a book by. Uh, Niall Ferguson who is obviously mm-hmm. one of the world's worst people yes. but I read it when I was writing I was writing a review essay for the New Yorker like mm. 15 years ago in that kind of pre-Iraq war moment yeah. when I was like oh yeah maybe we'll do a new empire thing and all that kind of stuff and there was a bunch of books out yes, yes. and it was almost like a picture book I can't remember exactly <laughs> in any case I read it to sort of you know to, to, to review these books and it, you know like a semi picture book like kind of you know a lot of pictures yeah. and it was interesting it was the first time I had really Read about the Canadian version of, you know, the mid nineteenth century. A lot of kind of middling people from the British Isles, like heading west and starting farms. That's right. Yeah, yeah, And it's not too different. It's pretty similar.
0: (laughs) Very similar. Pretty
1: similar. And and it was that was that was uh, you know I don't I don't I just don't know that history, but that was um, striking to me. Let me ask you about okay. So we are all satellites revolving around the. Shitstorm of Trump. Yes. Right. W- the the Russia probe and all of the president's legal entanglements seem to be accelerating mm-hmm. now. People are, you know, pleading guilty to things mm-hmm. uh, right and left. What's your read of where we are in this story? The Trump story and or the Russia story, however okay, you want to okay, grab okay. onto that.
0: Yeah, well, um, I... Th- My take on the Russia story has always been that it's more of a corruption story than an espionage story. Not to say that there wasn't espionage or uh, FSB people, but I mean, I think the core of it is that you know, Trump has long been uh, you know like on the sort of shady side of the law and has had uh, been drawing connections for people all over the world. And uh, also that there is a kind of uh, globalization story, uh, which is um, the you know w- w- with the sort of uh, end of the Cold War, uh, you know, like Russia became a capitalist state, but kind of, you know, like on the sort of outlying fringes of, you know, the sort of like mafia capitalism, yeah, right? like with yeah, really yeah. no hold bar. And uh, there was a lot of incentives um, uh, for people in the West to like look the other way for that because there's, you know, like these oligarchs, you know, have like a ton of money. And uh, one sees it in like, you know, like in England where like I think, uh, you know, like the financial sector there <laughs> it was always, uh, you know, like willing to turn a blind I don't think it's an accident that suddenly you, see, you know people are getting killed in uh, uh, in uh, the European country that has the biggest banking sector. Right, <laughs> right, where, right. Where it's like the easiest to. Well, know.
1: it's interesting you say about that that kind of the, the thing of being on the periphery of of world yeah. capitalism. That it's always been certainly in the British imperial mm-hmm. period, there was always a. A sort of a spectrum of transgression mm-hmm. that certain things you could do in the in the in the I mean, colonies yeah. Yeah. and 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 metropolitans could do and I mean th- look someone like Cecil, Cecil Rhodes yeah yeah like the whole spectrum from <laughs> from, from from genocide to to uh, plunder well plunder sexuality yeah. everything right you do yeah. that you can do that in Rhodesia yeah. you don't do it or you do it in a different way in 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 London yeah. Yeah. And, and so. That is a part of it. It's interesting. We've had uh, Adam Davidson on the podcast a few times. And there is there's also this broader story about the end of the Cold War, where you have a certain kind of capitalism, a certain kind of state capitalism, which which involves lots of looting yes. of money. And you have these buildups of huge amounts of capital on the peripheries of the sort of the global capitalist system. Yeah. And it, it keeps needing to go places. Yes. and and that has you know, there's all sorts of things that involves. You see it in you see it in, in in developing countries. You see it in these kind of looted countries like Russia. So that's a part of it. Yeah, yeah. That's a part of it too.
0: That's that's part of it too. Yeah, yeah. And I think the larger issue is sort of like globalization, where I think that like you know, uh, I mean, Bush Senior died, and I think it's important to kind of remember that moment because uh, he's so colorless that people don't realize this. But that was a real moment of American triumphalism, right? You know, like like Fukuyama's end of history, and there was a kind of conception of globalization that it's really Americanization. You're going to like, you know, bring the American system to all these other countries. And, uh, but I mean, if you think about like it as an actual process, if you're bringing America to Russia, you're also going to bring Russia to America. Like there's a two-way street, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like, like it's not a full integration unless there's like a flow back and forth. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, and, uh, and it applies to all levels of globalization. There's only the sort of corruption angle, but then also the sort of media angle, right? Like if you're going to open up the wonders of the American internet uh, to like uh, all, uh, all these countries, then you're also going to have, uh, you know, Russia being able to like, you know, manipulate social media or, you know, China being able to like, you know, impose its will on Google. Uh, so, so, I mean, I think it, part of like trying to understand Trump is to think about, I think we have to step beyond Trump and like think about globalization as a process that actually has been going in two directions uh and and it's not just like the americanization of the world it's also you know the um uh um the,
1: well, the oligarchization the oligarchization of, yeah.
0: of america right um so i think that the, uh, uh and i think that i mean it seems like uh, from the, uh, I, did you see this Daily Beast report about how Mueller is like now looking into Saudi yeah. Arabia? and yeah. I mean, like that's what I was. I mean, there are people on the left, um, uh, which I'm broadly a part of, you know, who like have always resisted. I think foolishly the Russia story uh, because they think it's just like Cold War paranoia or whatever. But like my always take about it is or
1: or, or a, a a false consciousness diversion yeah. from. From socialism and yeah. Medicare for all.
0: <laughs> that's right, that's right. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah <laughs> or, or, or yeah, or, or that uh, uh, centrist dems not owning up to their defeat and it, yeah, yeah, that yeah, that or means, whatever, or whatever. Yeah, but there's a whole bunch of conceptualized But I mean like, like I always thought, well, first of all, it's not um, We could call it, this
1: the Michael Tracy <laughs> yes, moment. That's,
0: yes, that's yes, right, that's yes. right. Yeah. So it's but I was like my take on it was one it's a corruption story as more than even an espionage story. And certainly corruption is very uh, American. And uh, also that it's actually like a global story, not just a Russian story. That it's like, you know, like, and then we're kind of seeing, uh, you know, like Saudi Arabia being brought into this. And uh, uh, I think that, you know, like, um, my magazine, The New Republic, had a big thing about, like, Trump's family business in India. And there's, Mm -hmm. like, all sorts of, like, dirty stuff there.
1: Well, there's definitely been... For a year plus now, and at, at first we weren't quite sure, but and and we still don't know the exact outlines. But it's been clear that Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, and Israel
0: mm-hmm.
1: were working in some way, maybe just you know bumping up mm-hmm. bumping up against each other, mm-hmm. kind of finding momentary confluence mm-hmm. of interest, But with Russia, and yes. that's how you get that Seychelles stuff, yes. and all of this. It's a very opaque stuff, but you've got all of these. I mean, one of the big things that I think still hasn't gotten enough attention and it kind of kills me given my tribal affiliations is that this this you keep coming across these different companies that are uh, uh, selling IDF. Uh, psyops techniques. Yes, yes, yes and, yeah, and yeah. selling them that you can use them in America <laughs> against right. Americans, yeah. or use them in 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 uh, you can use them to kill uh, uh, Khashoggi in yes, in yes. Istanbul.
0: Yes, yes. I don't think this is part of Werner's. Uh, I mean, um, Herzog's vision.
1: nothing ever turns out quite the way you think. Uh, it's gonna yeah, turn yeah,
0: out. yeah. But no, it is definitely the case. Yeah, that there's uh, a lot of stories about you know, former Mossad people involved with uh, uh, various things, uh, including, uh, I mean, I think a lot of this, like, on, on the Middle Eastern stuff, I think a lot of it just comes down to the Iran deal and the the sort of existential crisis that some of the actors in the Middle East felt, because I think their horror was always not that the Iran deal would fail. That it would work. But that would work, and that, that, that they would, America would need them less. Uh, and certainly, like, I mean, Trump was a big victory for putin but you know he's always also been a big victory for Mohammed bin salman he's yeah always has been a big victory for netanyahu yeah you know, yeah, in, yeah. So, in some ways i mean yeah i think he's the last hurrah i mean i'm hoping <laughs> the last hurrah for, for for this concert of people and they're really you know trying to push it to the limit yeah what they can get out of this
1: yeah no and and there's so there's and there's definitely there and the the saudis are a longer term and and different version of it but still you have this thing a relatively small comp- uh, country mm-hmm. i st- well more a small state yes. than a small country saudi arabia's got a pretty big population mm-hmm. obviously uae less so but huge sums of money yes that can never in any anything like the near future be invested domestically. Yes, it has to be put places, and that makes the Saudis, the Saudi, uh, the, the Saudi family, the, the royal family, very dependent on other. Countries to yeah. sort of lean against and 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 leverage off of, so all of these things come together yeah, in yeah. the Russia
0: story. And Trump is like the kind of perfect figure if you're like somebody that is kind of you know shady and has a lot of money and needs to like you know launder it, like you know like he he's, he's, he was like the uh, and the Trump campaign was uh, in some ways a perfect opportunity for those those organizations. But I mean those those entities, right? And in some ways, I mean we we're talking about. Globalization before, but like there is a sort of uh, intellectual kind of component to this that these um, uh, entities have been very successful in mobilizing parts of the American right into uh, sharing their vision. You, you do you remember the stories like long before Trump, but that there were a bunch of American bloggers who were paid off
1: by like was it like, Mal- Yeah, <laughs> no, I do, I do, and there's actually, I'm I have the. Josh Trevino, Mm -hmm. Trevino, um, who I don't know exactly what he's up to these days. But back 10, a dozen years ago, he was, you know, sort of part of the first wave of American bloggers on the right. And yes, it came out that he uh, was, he, he also, he was, I think... I don't know if he was a registered foreign agent from for Malaysia or an unregistered one. And yeah, that he was spreading, mm-hmm. the you, know, spreading you know, spreading a lot of money around yeah, to yeah. kind of make sure and, and if you think about it, you know, uh Malaysia was never like a huge part of the blogosphere conversation in <laughs> the United right. States. But there was the whole I don't know if it I don't know if it was part of the um Anwar Ibrahim and uh, the guy who was his nemesis, who's now back being president. Yeah. So, okay. So just, and basically there was, uh, Oh, Mahathir. Yes. Uh, was the dominant head Mm -hmm. of state, or I guess prime minister, since they have a kind of a revolving monarchy, uh, in, in Malaysia, his protege was this guy, Anwar Ibrahim and, uh, Anwar Ibrahim either was a fascinating, democrat uh kind of in in the in 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 a part of the developing world or had spent a lot of money around dc mm-hmm. and got a little too big for mm-hmm. mahatir's yeah. purposes and he was driven from power and then indicted for sodomy uh-huh. and did a long prison stint mm-hmm. and just recently they have reunited because they they got rid of the subsequent guy who was corrupt whatever yeah in any case but yes, this kind of putting money into the American system is not yeah. is not a new thing.
0: It's not a new thing. No, no. I mean, I think I think the scale of it is kind of new. I think. I mean, like looking at it, okay, there's a there's a couple of points. The, um, part of the thing with being an empire is that you create a situation. Uh, where there are people at the periphery who have a lot of stake in influencing what happens in the metropolis, who have a lot of stake. Uh, uh, and so, I mean, like, thinking about in the longer term, like, within the Cold War, like, certainly the China lobby, and, like, you know, the uh, the, the, the stakes that various people had for um, trying to uh, uh, keep America from recognizing Communist China. I mean, if you think about Manafort and Stone, what they did in the 70s was they elected a Republican president in 1980, and then they went into Doing lobbying and lobbying for you know like these very ghoulish uh, foreign dictators uh, and using their the connections that they've built out within the Republican Party. Right. And so what Manafort was trying to do in 2016 was just the the reverse. You first you get the ghoulish dictators right. with the money and then you elect the Republican president. And right. That's actually right. a problem. Like there's actually ordering is very important. You should first elect the guy and then make these connections, right? Like, uh, but certainly the 80s already showed that you know like there's a, there's this model. Well, you know one.
1: It's funny, one thing that I I always wanted to write something at length about this, but one of the things that happened at the end of the Cold War was that uh, American politics took this new media mm-hmm. spin, mm-hmm. kind of, you know, a, a certain kind of politics, politicking took hold in the 90s, nearly 90s. A lot of it started with Clinton yeah. picked up on the right. And these people, there was this model, you kind of won a big election in the U.S. and then you went everywhere. Yes, yes. And you and you kind of ran campaigns all over the world. And that was loosened up by the end of the Cold War because a lot more countries, a lot more, you know, kind of post-communist countries. And in the non-communist countries, you know, in the old days, if the U.S. kind of... System wouldn't necessarily just let you freelance. Yeah, yeah, like like you've got to be part of the program. Mm-hmm. What do we want? What does the CIA want? Mm-hmm. But everything was open, and everybody was going out there and running campaigns. And you saw it. Um, it's one of the big things in Israeli politics yes, yes, that yes, Americans yes. started running Israeli campaigns. It really, it, it yeah. changed Israeli politics in a lot of ways. A lot of stuff in the in the in the in Eastern Europe in the former Soviet Union. And that was on the right and the left, and kind of, so part of what you see with that Manafort thing is that blowback, of course, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. of coming back. The now, you know, yeah. sort of where someone like uh, Manafort, I don't want to say he, it's probably unfair to say he went native yeah. in, in, in Ukraine, Russia, because... He, he brought that he there, already, right? He yeah, brought the a, corruption yeah, with yeah, him. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um but still it's it's it, it
0: opened up a level of corruption like, you know, that he couldn't even practice in America. Yeah. 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 yeah no, I know, that's absolutely right. And I mean like I mean with the blowback I mean this is a, also part of the Russia thing. Like I think you wrote some stuff very early on in like before Trump was even elected uh, which really stuck with me which is that we have to kind of look at this through Putin's eyes as well right and like from you know like Putin's perspective America's been interfering in Russia and you know Russia's sphere of influence for a long time <laughs> you know like you know basically putting in Yeltsin you know and then running all these like color revolutions uh, and so I mean I think part of Putin's motivations is, uh, you know, like, to show, well, you know, two can play at this game, right? I, yeah, I, th- I think that's, like, a crucial part of the story as as well. This sort of, like, period of uh, globalization is turning out to have a lot more consequences, and it also has this, like, weird kind of, like, side effect of feeding into um, a lot of the nativist uh, politics uh, because there is this sort of, you know, sudden amorphous concern for, like, you know, unseen foreign forces that are, like, you know... Um, uh, shadowy things that are out there, and you know, like on the right, it takes you know the form of all these kind of like Soros conspiracy theories.
1: Right. Is, okay. So here, last thing I want to talk about, and we kind of got into this when you said about um, being somewhat an odd man out on the North American left of 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 taking the Russia story seriously and not seeing it. As, you know, there's, there's social democracy and there's the Russia scandal and they really don't have anything to do with each other. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that I, I, that, that I've always thought about you is that politically, ideologically, you are ideologically there, maybe not temperamentally there in the way that, I, you know, the, uh, intercept yeah, kind yeah, of yeah, yeah. Michael Tracy, sort <laughs> of th- that, that kind of thing, yeah, yeah, yeah. um, which, which... It, you know, nothing wrong with that. It's just different perspectives. Th- so, but here, but we have this election coming up, yeah. coming off this midterm in the United States. When I say election, presidential election. Yeah. Where do you see the Democratic Party in in the U.S. and the center left to? Where, where is that going? Where are we going well, in in this country? And yeah, I mean, it's interesting. In
0: there's two different things that are happening with both parties, which is I think Republicans have definitely become a I, I
1: should have said. The Michael Tracy, Glenn Greenwald <laughs> yes. axis. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I could, have, could have said that yeah. much more smoothly.
0: <laughs> the, the, uh, uh, I'll I'll to return to that in a second, but I just want to talk about this broader point about where politics is now. Because on the one hand, the Republicans have become a minority party. Like I think that's like almost undeniable like even in the you know the last like seven elections they've only won a majority once yeah. uh uh in a national le- level uh but they've embraced that and are like going i mean part of Krampism is embracing that minority status uh, and seeing how far you can push that uh the, the the non-republicans are majority but they're like really divided and you're really seeing i mean i think that the next uh Two years uh, next, not just two years next, the foreseeable future. There's going to be like a lot of battles uh, between the sort of you know rising left and the you know like large number of people uh, who are have always either been centrist uh, or liberal rep- uh, Democrats or who are now like refugees from the Republican Party. And uh, um, it's, I think that's a really hard thing to navigate. Uh, I think in some ways, on an issue by issue level, like it can work out pretty well. Like I think if you put on something on the table like Medicare for all, like that kind of gravitates to other people. I think, unfortunately, a lot of it is like generational and attitudinal. Like, like you often see like people who are, aren't that far apart politically, but who like hate each other. Well, because- you know,
1: the funny thing what I what I always think about is you see the this this interminable. Um, it, <laughs> do you remember? There's a Star Trek episode from the original Star Trek about this guy Lazarus who's caught. Between two universes, oh, yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. he basically has to kind of condemn himself to fighting his <laughs> his double to keep yeah, both yeah. universes from exploding. Yeah, yeah. Like, this is going somewhere, believe me. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of of the perpetual battle between Nira Tandon on yes. Twitter and and all of yes. all of her um, sort of yeah d- DSA <laughs> yeah. inflected uh, yeah. Uh, people, and that has always struck me as kind of like the real ideological dif- differences here are not quite as great as the antagonism that's right that's right yeah. that 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 captures it now that doesn't mean and and sometimes we have a kind of we're over literal about ideology yeah. and policy that there yeah. that that the things that we consider attitude and temperament are more are yeah. deeper and more real.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it is kind of generational. And that, that maybe goes back to what you were saying about like my sort of politics because I I, you know, I am, a, uh, since I'm Canadian, I can say it. I'm a you know, democratic socialist. I, I try to vote for, uh, you know, the left most viable party, uh, which we have several of in Canada. It partially comes from being uh, of the left and coming out of like the 90s mm-hmm. and like coming out of a period where, it, because I think that I belong to this kind of like intermediate generation, where like there had been a kind of very strong left in the '60s and even '70s, uh, and then that went into abeyance, and there's like now a much stronger left, and so the, the left is either very old, like Bernie Sanders, right. or very young, right, like right, uh, right. uh, you'll know, see. So you don't get a very very many middle aged uh, leftists. Uh, uh, that's and,
1: th- that is definitely, and I that's definitely something that shapes my political yeah. thinking, whatever. Because if you if if you were um, you know, somewhere on the left in the broadest sense in the 90s, a lot of it was like, we're just trying to hold on to a few things here, right? Yeah, yeah, like yeah. we have no ambitions to build anything. We're yeah. just trying to kind of yeah, yeah, hold on defends, to stuff. Yeah, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. And and I think that for people who have that experience, a lot of the, I don't want to say, I don't know if it's maximalism, yeah. but something more like maximalism yeah. in, in the contemporary left is it it feels a bit odd yeah it just it 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 mm. takes some th- there's a lot of muscle memory yeah. that you have to unlearn that's right, and that's right. yeah, i yeah. think there's always for someone i don't know i think i know you're younger than me i'm not sure how much younger but for th- there's always in in my own head there's always a kind of a dialogue of how much is this muscle memory that i need to unlearn which clearly a lot of it is yeah. and how much of it is you kids don't know what it's all about, man, and and <laughs> I know some stuff that you don't know, right? And get off yeah. my lawn and all that kind of stuff, and and yeah. you know, so it's all it's it's yeah, a, yeah, it's a yeah. struggle, it's a, yeah. it's a process.
0: I always I think back. I mean, like my thinking about a lot of this stuff is um, shaped by uh, some of the history of the left of like people like. Uh, Irving Howe and Michael Harrington, who had come out of the old left and, you know, were like sort of anti-Stalinist at a period where a lot yep. of the left was Stalinist. And then they were confronted by the new left. And uh, I mean, like Irving Howe, like, had a really bad reaction to that. And he had some good critiques and he was definitely pointing out ways in which people were going destructive directions. But he also, like, you know, was at a period where, like, he was just, like, rejecting things out of hand. Right. Uh, and I think, like, Michael Harrington was a little bit more balanced in trying to, like, you know, like, have his say. but also So try to listen to people, right? So so I was the the, to try to hope, like you know, I can at least try to be more a little bit more in Michael Harrington's tradition,
1: right? No, that that, no, it's it's uh, we we all eventually you know become the old thing, and we're trying to kind of make sense of the the new stuff that's coming along. I
0: mean, I I do think yeah, a lot of I mean, like I you, you know. Uh, you you know being middle aged and having lived through the '90s, you always think like, well, that's you know, some things that you know like are gonna be hard. But I, I do admire like the sort of boldness of you know something like uh, um, AOC and like even it's like Sanders. Like I mean, he mm-hmm. put a lot of issues on the table yeah. that no, were absolutely. not gonna be uh, absolutely there. And like even I mean, to speak for Bernie, like you know, on the Saudi Arabia stuff, like you know, he and his foreign policy advisor Matt Duss, have really like been changing the conversation in like such a productive and useful way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: No, absolutely. No, and I I've, I've known Matt I mean before yeah. long before I mean coming out of M- Middle East Israel kind of yeah. kind of uh, kind of stuff. Before we finish, especially if you're thinking of maybe making it into a book, tell us about the dissertation and the topic and the possible book to come.
0: (laughs) Okay. So I've been working on this dissertation for a long time, uh, and I have like a fairly large manuscript, which I need to reshape. But it's basically, uh, I'm returning to it because I think it's very topical, which is, um, I'm interested, I'm writing about the origins of uh, right-wing populism in America, and uh, trying to argue that it comes out of culture rather than ideology, and particularly popular culture. Uh, my focus is on this comic strip, Little Orphan Annie, um, which started in the 1920s, and I think people might be familiar with the musical. But the musical actually inverts the politics because in the actual comic strip, I mean, the storyline is that there's Daddy Warbucks, who's a you know billionaire industrialist uh, and an arms manufacturer, Warbucks, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he. He, you know, uh, he rescues a poor orphan girl named Orphan Annie, and then you know, he sometimes loses her. And the enemies in the comic strip are like, you know, these horrible um, welfare state advocates that want Orphan Annie to go to school rather than work, as she wants to do, because she loves work.
1: <laughs> and they're also and so she's like kind of like a little uh, micro Ayn Rand, Ayn Rand sort of figure. That's right, right? That's yeah. right.
0: Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but also like uh, you know, like union uh, people who uh, uh, union bosses, you know, pointy-headed college. Into, electorals and this all really I mean the comic strip is interesting because it has that um, in the 20s it was actually pretty progressive and then the cartoonists really turned against onto the right with the New Deal and what you can kind of see is that he's trying to use the traditional sort of Dickensian populism the little guy versus you know these uh, big figures and then but uh, giving it a very conservative slant, um, and I think that a, uh, uh, one sees in the um, uh, a lot of sort of like nineteenth uh, century, nineteen uh, thirties um, and nineteen forties popular culture the origins of like this uh, attempt to respond to the New Deal by um, uh, uh, taking um, uh, populist ideas and and using uh, because. Prior to that, like uh, conservatism was sort of like openly hierarchical, right? Like you look at a figure like Calvin Coolidge, or, right, right, right. <laughs> you know, or uh, Hoover, you know, like like their whole thing is like you know, well, the best person wins, you know, like uh, there's a hierarchy, and so in re- having to respond to Franklin Roosevelt, conservatism had to learn to um, uh, speak in a populist language, uh, and I think that. You know, there's a lot of historians of conservatism, they really emphasize the role of like intellectuals like, you know, William F. Buckley and Leo Strauss. And I think that's all, you know, very important. But I actually think like the sort of meat and potatoes of those. Uh, and one of the interesting things I found in the research is that uh, um, uh, people who are reading, uh, the cartoonist kept some of his letters. And so there are letters uh, from Claire Booth Luce and from Jesse Helms. And, from, uh, and there's a letter from not Ronald Reagan, but some, a friend of Reagan. And uh, who,
1: what, tell us the cartoonist's name.
0: Uh, Harold Gray.
1: And what is country. his? What are his years?
0: Uh, so 1894, and then he died in uh, 1967. Yeah, got yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So, so he it sort of spans a big part of the 20th century, uh, early 20th. And century. did he
1: write the comic basically until the end of his life?
0: Yes, he did. He did. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. interesting.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, so that so so I so, g- so
0: I'm, I'm trying to like see if that is transferable into a book. I mean, and I want to try to connect it with what's going on now because I think Trump, if you look at him, I mean, what genius he has is that he draws on these popular stereotypes. So if you the idea of like a billionaire as hero and rescuer, where does that come from? Well, it comes from, you know, Batman and, you know, yeah. <laughs> like Iron Man and Daddy Warbucks.
1: Well, there's always been this There's always been this theme, I don't know if it's in American politics or, you know, kind of Anglo-American politics of, you know, only a billionaire, especially one who kind of put it together himself, can quite get the common man. Yeah, yeah, that's right. that's at least paradoxical, if not ridiculous. But it's a, <laughs> yeah. but it's something that predates Trump. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's you know, right, yeah. Ross Perot had it to Ross, some extent, yeah, yeah, although yeah, yeah. it was different. Yeah, 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 Differently inflected.
0: That's right. Yeah, no, no, no. It's, it's a kind of like long-standing uh, theme, and I, I'm trying to like show some of where uh, this comes from. Yeah.
1: Right. Well, Jeet, here I'm glad we timed this yeah. that you were making an appearance uh, in in the United States, since you, as you say, you kind of. You 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 participate in our in our thing down here remotely. Yes, from uh, from the Toronto area. I didn't know what is that half the year you're.
0: Oh, I'm yeah. My uh, wife live uh, works in uh, Regina, uh, Saskatchewan, and so uh, for her during her teaching periods we're there. Got and it. Then we're in Toronto. Yeah, oh, where, okay. where our family lives.
1: Right, right, right. Okay, uh, let me remind everybody that the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You get twenty percent off your first. First order at Grady'sColeBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's promo code TPM. Gee, thanks for thanks for coming by. Oh, I really enjoyed this. Yeah. Uh, we, we should we, we need to reprise this by phone <laughs> uh, since yeah. I guess you're not not here that often. Uh,
0: yeah, I think well the next time I'm down. I'll... Uh, you awesome,
1: know, awesome, yeah. awesome. Well, I'll look forward to it. Thanks so much, uh, and David. I guess we'll we'll talk to everybody next week. Yeah, see you then. Later.